The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Our expanded budget finance and audit standing committee for Friday, March the 2nd will now come to order. And if our clerk will please call the roll. Council Member Scott Benson. Council Member Fred Durhall III. Present. House Member Letitia Johnson. Present. House Member Gabriela Santiago Romero. Present. House Member Mary Waters. Present. House Member Angela Whitfield Calloway. House Member Coleman Young II. Council President Pro Tem James Tate. Council President Mary Sheffield. Council President Mary Sheffield. Present. Madam President, you have a quorum present. All right, thank you. There being a quorum present, we are now in session. Uh, and we are here for the purposes of the presentation of fiscal year uh, 24 City of Detroit's budget. And we will turn it over to uh, the administration and our mayor. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, uh, Madam Just turn your microphone on. I got it. Just press. I, I got it. Yeah. All right, I got to come visit you more often. Uh, so thank you, uh, Madam President, members of council. I'm really uh, pleased to be here to present you with the 10th straight balanced budget uh, for the city of Detroit. Uh, and this year's budget is historic. Uh, this is the year that was supposed to be financial doomsday, that the financial analysts said would be the year of the fiscal cliff uh, where the city of Detroit was going to be back in financial crisis. And the council members who were here will remember that the plan of adjustment coming out of bankruptcy required the budget to be balanced for 10 years, did not concern itself after that. And so the uh, plan that uh, Kevin Orr left us with made no pension payments for 10 years. And then this year, fiscal year 24, we had $130 million in new obligations. And so for the last decade, a lot of our retirees were very concerned that if we were not able to make this pension payment in 2024, we could be back uh, into a financial crisis and the unthinkable could happen. We could be back in a situation where our retirees were looking uh, at more sacrifices. Uh, but an interesting thing happened. Uh, the plan of adjustment that we agreed to assumed that our income tax revenues would grow at a rate of 2% a year over the 10 years. But when we started bringing businesses back to the city and started to drive the unemployment rate down, our income tax revenues ran well above that level. Uh, and starting in 2016, uh, the Marin Council decided, even though there were a lot of worthwhile uh, projects that we could have funded, uh, they decided to start a retiree protection fund and to save for the day that these obligations would be needed. And over the last eight years, this council and this finance team have put aside $470 million in that retiree protection fund. What's so uh, uh, special about this is we weren't required to do it. The plan of adjustment didn't require us to set aside any of that money. Uh, but uh, the fact that we did means that we are in a position today to deal with the issue. And so in the budget that's before you, that $130 million cliff will be paid for $73 million from the general fund and $57 million drawing from the Retiree Protection Fund. 
uh, and the general fund contribution we've been building to over the years. So the feared fiscal cliff is a hill. It's a steep hill, and it's not easy to manage, but because of the discipline of the last eight years, uh, you have a budget that handles it and balances a uh, uh, little tight, but without any cuts or crisis. The budget that's in front of you increases the overall budget from last year by about $150 million, about a, a billion one hundred fifty to about a billion three. Of that $150 million, half of it is that $73 million pension contribution I just talked about. About $25 million uh, is the police raises that were approved last week. About $15 million is funding for DDOT, and the DDOT funding uh, has some different pieces to it. We have some federal funding that's lapsed that we have to replace. We have a, a loss of fare box revenue that we have to replace, uh, and we need to deal with uh, the pay of our bus operators to keep them competitive. Uh, those of you who were here two years ago approved a collective bargain agreement with ATU, our bus operators, and it was about, uh, for the maximum side, was $3 an hour plus an incentive bonus, which basically was $6,000 a year raise, and if you came to work, which most of our drivers are doing, it's about an $8,000 raise. I thought in 2021 that a $6,000 to $8,000 raise would have been enough to address our problems. It brought us uh, comparable to what SMART was paying. It did stop the attrition. People stopped leaving. But uh, the starting wage today, which is you get out of the training academy, it's $17 an hour with the attendance bonus is $19 an hour. Uh, we do not have people today who are willing to start out as bus drivers with that pay. Now, I used to run the SMART bus system. Four years ago, if we had offered... New bus drivers, $19 an hour in benefits that have been a line down the block, and we'd have filled the job uh, in a week. But uh, post-COVID, it is a far more stressful and demanding job. And the men and women who are doing it expect to be paid higher. And so while I thought being comparable to SMART would solve our problems, SMART can't fill their bus driver jobs either. They got more vacancies and cut more service than we have. And so we're going to have to address that, I'm hoping, in the next couple months. It's a road I've been down many times with unions, but I don't want anybody to think that all of the problems at DDOT is just the lack of funding for bus drivers. We've got significant operational problems. We've got issues with attendance, much less than before. And this is the kind of situation with most other unions. I sit down and say, okay, we're going to put a substantial amount of money on the table to make your members competitive. You have to do some things with us to make the place operate more efficiently. We did that with the police officers union, the firefighters union, AFSME, Teamsters, and the like. And I'm hopeful in the next month or two that we will reach an agreement with ATU in which they help us with some of the rules to fix efficiency and we pay our operators fairly. Uh, we need to put more service on the road. We've got the buses. We've got the shelters. We've got the facilities. Uh, what we need is to make sure we fill the positions. And I am... Uh, optimistic this year we're going to make enough of an adjustment uh, that we can fill those jobs. A um, few other things that are, uh, I think, notable in the budget, and the team here will take you through in far more detail than I can. When I say it's a status quo budget, last year we had 7,100 FTEs. This year we have 7,200 employees. It's not a significant difference. One of the biggest increases in the number of the employees is in the animal care shelter. 
And as you know, we are building a new shelter that will be complete this fall. Uh, there's going to be about $2 million more in operating costs, 17 more animal care staff at the shelter, because we're going to build a bigger facility uh, that's going to accommodate uh, more individuals. So that's one of the reasons for the increase in the employees. There's also going to be an increase in employees in the uh, housing uh, and redevelopment department. And the reason for that is, since I have been here, we have taken community block grant money and used it to pay for the planning department because we just didn't have money. It was a totally appropriate use, but it wasn't the best. Now that our revenues are up, we would like to return that community block grant money back to housing purposes and pay for the planning staff out of the general fund. So we're proposing $2 million more uh, in the planning staff in the general fund, moving $2 million back to housing uh, into uh, the block grant fund. Another item that I think we ought to have a, a conversation about is there's $13 million more in here for residential demolition. Uh, and this, to me, is good news. But we have to make a decision as a mayor and council, are we going to take responsibility for the private abandoned houses? In November of 2020, the voters of the city passed a $250 million bond issue in Proposal N. It has been an extraordinary success. We told uh, our residents then that there were 16,000 vacant land bank houses. We thought we could sell 8,000 of them and demolish the other 8,000. That was the plan in November of 2020 when we had 16,000. Today, we only have 7,000 left. Uh, Lawan Counts is doing an extraordinary job running the demolition department, and Tammy Daniels and the land bank are selling the properties at rates I would not have expected. And so we are going to be in a situation now where we are going to demolish the last 4,000 and sell the last 3,000 over the next year and a half. By the end of 2024, I really think it's possible Land Bank is going to own zero vacant houses. That's how successful Proposal N has been. But there is in this city a large number of vacant houses that are still owned by private citizens. We don't have hard numbers on them, but I would guess it's in the range of four to 5,000. The city has never taken primary responsibility for demolishing private abandoned houses, and uh, it, it's challenging legally to use municipal bond money to spend money on, on an individual's private property. And so here is a situation we're going to be in. For the last five or six years, somebody complained to you about a land bank or an abandoned house, and they'd call it a land bank house. That was almost always true. Now, the great majority of the time, it's not going to be a land bank house. But if you're the family living next door to an abandoned house, and there's somebody in there uh, with, with little fires going, people in and out of there, you're afraid for your children, you're afraid the house is going to catch fire and spread to your house, and you call for help, People actually don't want to hear, sorry, it's not my problem, it's not a land bank house. They have just as much risk from those privately owned houses as they do from the land bank houses. And so you have seen BC dramatically step up their inspection. Uh, as Council Member Santiago Romero and her committee know, you're seeing far more uh, demolition requests coming through on the private side than we've had before because as a city we are going to shift over the next 18 months from demolishing the land bank houses or selling land bank houses to demolishing or selling uh, the private houses. And so I appreciate the council appropriated $13 million uh, uh, earlier this week to get us started this summer on the private houses, 
But our goal is to be in a full-fledged effort where if the abandoned house can be saved, the land bank files a lawsuit on it and under our nuisance suits. If the land bank house or the private house is so far gone, uh, Dave Bell and BC to issue an order to demolish it comes to council. And by mid-2014, if we're going to finish the job of getting rid of abandoned houses, it's going to be focused almost entirely on the privately owned uh, homes. One other item that will be good news, I know Council Member uh, Calloway uh, has been uh, focused on reducing property taxes, and while I'm not sure how we reduce the operating mills, I know uh, Council Member will be pleased to know that we went back and looked at it, and we can reduce the debt mills, uh, which will result in the property tax reduction. Because we've been managing our financing so well, we have not been doing other borrowing. And so last year we issued uh, nine mills in, in a debt millage because it's sized to exactly what the outstanding obligation is. I'm pleased to say this year it will go down to eight mills and next year seven mills, which means in July uh, the people of the city will see a one mill reduction, a year from now a two mill reduction, probably $50 to $100 for most people this year and 100 to $200 for most people next year. Uh, but we are going to have a tax cut for the first time in my memory. And I know several members of council are deeply interested in Jay Rising's uh, work on the split tax, which I think is ultimately going to be the solution uh, for reducing uh, the, the very high property taxes on homeowners. This, is, what's being presented to you today, is the general fund budget, as council is well aware. It's not the American Rescue Plan budget, which is totally separate. Uh, and in June of 2021, Council appropriated $827 million in ARPA funds. We've got $750 million programmed. And as you know, all of it has to be programmed and obligated by the end of 24. It goes back to the federal government. Two years later, uh, we know a lot more. And we think there's about $40 million that we thought we could spend in June of 2021 that we are not going to be able to spend for those purposes now. And so at some point... Uh, uh, Jay Rising and the finance team is going to send you a proposed budget amendment on the ARPA funds basically to take the $40 million that we don't believe can be spent and program it to other things. And I've started conversations with the council president, and the, we will do it at whatever order the council wants, whether you want uh, to have uh, the finance department submit uh, the ARPA amendment concurrent with this, you can consider them together, or you want to finish this budget and do the other, but I want Council to be aware uh, that, that there will have to be a $40 million amendment, and there's going to be, I'm sure, significant conversations about how that $40 million is going to be reallocated. And then I would make one last point before I turn this over to the people who really understand the numbers, uh, and that is uh, where we stand with the Financial Review Commission. Uh, some of you were Council members uh, when we went before the FRC, some were actually on the other side of the table in Lansing. But Governor Snyder proposed in 2014 in the FRC legislation that the city of Detroit be under strict state oversight for 20 years. He was modeling it after New York City when after New York City went into default in 1976, every action they took was monitored for 40 years by a state oversight committee, and uh, that's what Governor Snyder wanted to do. Council President Jones and I went up to Lansing with every other member of council sitting behind us in unity, and we said to the legislators, that's okay, but we want to have the right to earn our way out. If we can balance the budget and pay our bills for three straight years, 
we'd like to be out of active oversight. And the Republican legislators looked at that and said, the city's run 12 years of deficit in a row. There's no way they'll have three straight balanced budgets. They gave us that opt-out language. And everybody was shocked three years later in fiscal year 2017 when the FRC voted uh, that we had been in full compliance and took us out of active oversight. So we are no longer in a situation where every action you take, every spending, every contract, goes to a state oversight commission for approval. But that FRC remained in place for 10 more years in a dormant stage through 2027. What that means is, as long as we continue to balance the budget, they do not have any say in what we're doing, and in 2027, they go away completely, and self-determination is 100% back to the city. This is fiscal year 24. This is year 7. We are three years away from having complete self-determination. But it's really important, particularly as we think about the ARP funds, one of the factors the FRC has to, to consider is do we have a balanced four-year plan? And why we've been so successful on the ARP side is we've made it a point to say we are going to use this for one-time funding. We are not going to put ourselves in a situation where we ramp up our spending in, in the ARP side and then in 2026 be facing a big deficit. That invites the FRC back in, and that invites problems. And so for 10 years now, we have been remarkably unified and disciplined. We can see the day when the state of Michigan is out of our business for good, uh, and I hope uh, that we'll continue to have this partnership uh, for the next three years uh, to finish that. And with that, uh, uh, Madam President, it's okay. I'll turn it over to Jay Rising and the team to talk about the specifics. Mr. Mayor, and before we, you uh, start, we'd like to cut off our public comment. Public comment is now cut off, and if the clerk would note that Member Callaway has joined us as well. Thank you. Mr. Rising. Thank you, Madam President. Um, at the risk of being a little bit redundant with the mayor, um, I would like to start by saying, before Steve Watson provides the Council of the and the Public um, with an overview of the 24 budget detail, I wanted Tanya Sotomayor and I to, um, to provide um, a little context to the budget. And Tanya's been with this city all during the time of um, and before of uh, the fiscal crisis and has been instrumental to, in the recovery in the last 10 years. And she can offer some important, I think, the context of this, um, to the efforts we've taken in the last 10 years. I'd start by saying this is a historic budget. Um, you know, in the fact that today that we're presenting a budget which is balanced against its projected recurring revenues is a testament to the, what the mayor and what this council and what private council members serving on private councils have done over the last 10 years. In 2014, when the court had to determine under federal law that the plan of adjustment was feasible, that the city had a feasible, a way, um, it was feasible for the city to achieve that plan, which in my estimation is not a ringing endorsement to say something is feasible, um, but they did so with a number of qualms. Even the person who was responsible for delivering the report on feasibility indicated that she felt that, it, that the city's ability to succeed was feasible, but only if it assumed no greater burdens than the plan, the plan assumed. Well, in 2014, no one understood that a pandemic would occur just six years later. Uh, so the city really has achieved the plan of adjustment, plus exceeded much beyond what, what the court has, had assumed it would. 
um, by working its way through every obstacle that happened during that time. But reaching that point and the ability to present this balanced budget to council for approval um, required a number of actions which was taken over the last 10 years that allowed us to do so. Um, that included countless hours countless hours of attracting businesses to the city this, to create new jobs and stabilize our tax base, the passage and implementation of Proposal N to stabilize the neighborhoods and improvement of residential housing values through the demolitions and stabilization of housing, strategic investments the city's made in housing development and repairs that improves conditions of housing and their values, um, and investments in programs that are designed to create opportunity for Detroiters and their businesses uh, which were significant in helping us um, weather any consequence of a financial uh, recession that may happen nationwide. And those programs include, as you know, Skills for Life, Learn to Earn, Project Clean Slate, Motor City Match, GDYT, and most recently, Jumpstart. Um, those programs probably at this time when the RSQE and the U of M forecast is predicting uh, a slight national recession is probably the most important thing we can be investing in right now to provide job training skills, opportunities for people to whether it's recession. And, and as Mr. Watson will talk about, that's a very interesting forecast they have for the city. Um, that they, they think because of our investments, we'll be able to weather this very well. Um, but we may see unemployment go up, but that's because the labor force hopefully will grow because of these investments. If our labor force grows and unemployment goes up, employment can rise also. So we'll have uh, unusual circumstance where we'll see a greater number of people, and potentially, even though we, we may see potential unemployment. And it's all because we're investing in people and bringing them back into the labor force. So what these efforts have achieved beyond housing security, personal safety, job skills, personal income, increased home values, have been, as the mayor indicated, a growth of um, income tax revenues in, in fiscal 24 was projected to be double than what was project, projected in, 19, in 2014. We've seen double-digit increases of home values um, through, over the last few years. Um, even though those increases were cushioned, the taxes from those increases are cushioned by the cap, um, by proposal A on, on taxable values. And we've seen the ability to make investments into the city's future which I would like Ms. Um, Stoudemire to talk about. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Jane. My name is Tanya Stoudemire, and I'm the city's chief deputy CFO. But from 2015 through 2011, I was actually the city's budget director. And I want to give you guys a little bit of history as to what that time was like during that period. Uh, so... There were many experts throughout the country who said that when the city of Detroit had to make $100 million annual pension payments, that we would go back into bankruptcy. So as the mayor has said, as Jay has said, this is very historic for us because we are far from going back into bankruptcy. We've been very successful with not only growing our revenues, but also our reserves and our economy. So right now, the city is in a very strong position to continue to be successful and to continue to sustain the services that we're currently providing to our residents. Um, 
10 years ago when I was the income tax director, the income tax revenues were just over $250 million. And the plan of adjustment indicated that by fiscal year 2024, we would be at 313 million. Today, we are projecting revenues that are nearly $400 million. And that's because of the investments, the redevelopment, and all the other things that are currently happening in the city. Uh, I'd like to go to slide four and kind of walk you through a handful of the slides. So the, in 2017, the city created the Retiree Protection Trust Fund. And this week, city council approved a $10 million deposit into that fund. Today, we have nearly half a billion dollars to draw down for our retirees' future pension payments. On the next slide. The orange bars that start in fiscal year 24 show how we intend to start drawing down the funds from that retiree protection fund over the next 16 years. As indicated earlier, instead of a $130 million pension cliff, we only need $73 million from our general fund budget. Uh, next slide, slide six, will show you that the city has twice the minimum requirement, which is 5% in budget reserve. So right now we have 11% in budget reserve. Best practice is probably closer to 15, we'll get there. But right now uh, we do have twice what is uh, required. Um, and then on the next slide. And as the mayor indicated earlier, and as Jay kind of reiterated, you know, thanks to Prop N and all of the investments that have been made in the city, uh, we will be able to reduce our property taxes by two mills over two years. Uh, and that relief will start as soon as this summer. So uh, with that, I can have Steve Watson get into more of the detail of the budget, but I just thought it was important that you all kind of had a perspective as to where we were and how far we've come and how incredible a job, you know, we have all done. And that only happened because we worked together. So thank you. Thank you, Ms. Stoudemire. Uh, I'm Steve Watson. I'm the city's budget director, and I'm joined by Jenny Yates, our deputy budget director. So as uh, I think most folks are aware, you know, building this budget is a nearly year-long process. Uh, the calendar you see on the slide in front of you just shows that we start all the way back in September uh, when we kick off the budget process with our city agencies. We hold our first revenue conference to see where revenues are headed as we're planning the budget. And then throughout October, we do a series of public engagement meetings with, um, uh, with um, community groups, each council district. We do an overview of the budget. We solicit feedback to incorporate into the budget and understand the public's priorities. And then from uh, November through February, we uh, receive the department's budget requests and we begin an extensive review process, you know, um, understanding that we're not able to fund everything we might want to do, but we are able to fund, um, uh, be able to fund city services and follow through on the commitments we've made. Uh, and so balancing the budget is a challenge every year. Um, and as we get to the February revenue conference, we get a final read on where revenues are going to be. And that sets the upper limit for what the budget can have in it. Uh, we're here today, of course, for the mayor's proposed budget. And starting next week, um, we'll kick off city council's budget hearings uh, starting March 8th. Um, 
going through April when City Council will vote on the budget. And for everyone's context, this is for the fiscal year that begins in July. So again, we spend the better part of the whole year planning for next year, and then we start the process all over again. Uh, and as Mr. Rising said, so part of this process starts with an economic forecast. Uh, so over, the, over a number of years now, we've partnered with University of Michigan, Michigan State, and Wayne State to help us understand the lo local economy better. You know, back when we started this partnership, most economic data was at the regional level, state level, maybe even the county level, but it wasn't capturing Detroit's story specifically. Uh, and so we're, you know, we were very pleased to hear um, in the most recent round last month when they issued their forecast that despite projections of a mild national recession later this year, early into next year, that Detroit's economy uh, is well protected due to all the investments the city has been making in developing good-paying blue-collar jobs uh, uh, available to residents of the city. Um, but there's economic risk still ahead. I mean, uh, we're in a very uncertain time. Inflation's still very high. It's definitely having an impact on our budget um, as well as our revenues. Uh, and so we certainly have to be mindful of, of those risks and making sure, uh, as Ms. Stoudemire said, we're building up our reserves. We're budgeting conservatively to make sure that uh, this budget, uh, this balanced budget stays balanced. And the graphs you can see there are showing, of course, the big dip is during the pandemic as uh, state and local governments across the country has experienced um, drops in employment. But then the sharp curve up shows our substantial recovery that we've been experiencing uh, in the last couple of years and projected going forward. So we take that economic forecast and we use it to help build a revenue forecast. Um, so uh, one of our largest revenues, as both the mayor, uh, Mr. Rising, and Ms. Stoudemire discussed, is our income tax. And it's very economically sensitive. So as jobs and wages grow in the city, so does our income tax. Uh, and that's been our largest growth um, uh, for our revenues for the past 10 years and looking ahead to the next four. Uh, this budget has revenues that are over $100 million higher than when we were here last year, um, and again, mostly due to our income tax, uh, and it's $27 million higher than um, the revised estimates for the current year. Uh, again, um, you know, these updated forecasts are based on um, the employment uh, forecast uh, from the University of Michigan. But again, there's still risks in these revenues. You know, as the Federal Reserve is battling inflation, you know, it, it remains to be seen exactly what kind of economic effects that will have in terms of employment over the next year. Um, we're still uh, dealing with this you know, new phenomenon we've been living with since the pandemic of remote work and how that impacts our income taxes. Uh, and then uh, the activity at the casinos. We've been starting to see a shift from on-site activity at the casinos to new internet gaming platforms. We're very fortunate that we have that new revenue stream from internet gaming. Um, but as, it, as, as there's an ongoing substitution effect between the two, um, we have to be mindful of what that will mean for future uh, casino tax revenues. So the budget itself and the budget before the City Council today um, is, as we discussed earlier, it totals $2.6 billion, $1.3 billion from the general fund. And as you can see from the pie graph here, about half of the city's budget is the general fund, and then the other half comprises restricted funds, uh, whether it be from the state, uh, federal grants, um, water and sewer fees, uh, revenues that are restricted for specific purposes. And so a lot of our work in balancing the budget every year is focused on the general fund. 
And so what's in the general fund budget? So over half of it goes to pay for personnel. Um, you know, that's police officers, bus drivers, parks workers, firefighters, emergency medical technicians. Um, another almost fifth goes towards debt service and legacy pensions that Ms. Stoudemire discussed. Again, the you know paying off the uh, legacy pensions is the city's responsibility, and it's going to be with us for many decades to come and representing almost 20% of our budget. Uh, the remaining is for contractual services that help us deliver uh, services to the public. And if you think about what kind of departments and what uh, city services make up the budget, uh, again, almost or more than half of it is public health, safety, and transit. Um, and again, a, a fifth towards legacy pensions and debt. And then uh, the remaining 28% is everything else. So in building this budget, you know, even though we ultimately had over $100 million of additional revenue to work with, it was still very challenging. It's still a very tight budget because this budget follows through on promises we've already made, um, whether it be um, the scheduled pay raises in our existing labor contracts, the additional uh, cost of the police officer pay raises that the mayor and council approved back in the fall, um, the additional cost uh, implementing the new contract and staffing structure at the fire department where we've got firefighters and EMTs now doing a merged role and providing enhanced service to the public. Uh, and we're feeling the bite of inflation. So $14.5 million towards facilities, fleets, technology costs, and operations. Again, um, all of our operating costs are going up um, as our revenues go up too. And then as the mayor discussed, uh, $11 million specifically in the DDOT budget uh, to deal with fair losses in the roll-off of federal relief. And so you, as you can see in the table on the right, when you account for these mandatory costs that we have to include in our budget, there was only about $14 million left for new things, so only about 1% of that growth that was left over. And so uh, what's in this proposed budget using that remaining 1%? So $7 million uh, in a reserve for workforce investments uh, to achieve more competitive wages for many of our bargaining groups. And um, as uh, the mayor discussed earlier, um, you know, we know that the, the bus drivers is a big part of that. Uh, another $3.5 million for the new Unified Greenway Partnership, uh, Operations and Maintenance. And so this reflects that as we make ARPA investments, you know, we do have to put money in the budget to sustain them, to operate those, those new facilities and those new amenities here in the city. Uh, as the mayor mentioned, uh, $1.6 million for the animal care expansion. Again, we're building a new facility, and so we're going to have to have the additional staff and, and contracts necessary to run it. Uh, another million dollars for behavioral health and public health staff. Um, you know, as the health department moves past the, the pandemic um, and turns their uh, focus towards behavioral health and public health needs uh, throughout the city. And excited to announce uh, that we have included $600,000 in this budget to add an additional 1,000 expungements to Project Clean Slate. And lastly, a half a million dollars for the new Neighborhood Economic Development Team that was announced a week ago. Um, this new team is going to focus specifically on neighborhood-level investments and improvements. Uh, and so as we discussed earlier this week and last month, um, another part of our budget is how we use one-time surplus. So back in fiscal year 22, we had a $230 million surplus uh, due to higher-than-expected revenues and lower-than-expected spending as we were recovering from the pandemic. Uh, the City Council earlier this week uh, approved a $156 million supplemental appropriation to accelerate neighborhood improvements, uh, whether it be sidewalk replacements, um, this uh, year's parks improvements, as well as shoring up some of our reserves around risk management and the Retiree Protection Fund. That leaves $73 million uh, left to program in this budget, and this budget proposes using $13.5 million for public safety fleet and equipment, $13 million for the emergency demolitions, as the mayor mentioned, 
$6 million for the new freeway cleanup program um, as we uh, uh, expand that service that's uh, previously provided by the state. Uh, $5 million to continue the alley cleanup program, $2.6 million for vacant property grounds maintenance, $2.4 million for commercial corridor and graffiti cleanup, another $2 million for park amenities and greenway equipment, uh, $1.8 million for the Affordable Housing uh, Development and Preservation Fund, and $1.4 million for the next round of neighborhood planning studies. This table just provides an overview of the budget. Uh, again, income taxes are our largest area of growth on revenues. This table shows you how we're using $57 million from the Retiree Protection Fund to help pay for legacy pensions, and, and then the rest uh, as it splits between personnel, non-personnel, pensions, and debt service. Again, a total $1.3 billion budget balanced with um, $1.25 billion of recurring revenues and $57 million from the Retiree Protection Fund. Uh, as the mayor mentioned, in addition to adopting an annual budget, we have to approve a balanced four-year financial plan. Uh, and uh, pleased to say that this uh, four-year financial plan is balanced over four years, where recurring spending is balanced against recurring revenues. And as you can see from this table, as revenues grow, um, we uh, reduce our reliance on the Retiree Protection Fund every year. You see it declining the use of it $3 million every year. And this matches up with the bar graph that Ms. Stoudemire presented earlier as we gradually phase in the full impact of the legacy pensions within our general fund budget. Uh, the total spending from the budget, again, is $1.3 billion in fiscal year 24, and then steadily grows as with regular wage inflation and inflationary pressures on non-personnel spending. And so some key takeaways from this budget um, that we balance this year. Again, it's a challenge every year, and it's one we must meet every year. Um, you know, looking back on this process, it showed that we had resilience in our economy and our revenues. Again, thanks to all of the work the city has done growing the tax base and delivering economic opportunity and quality of life for Detroiters. Uh, it reflects the promise to our retirees whose pension benefits will be funded, thanks to all of our work together planning ahead uh, for these pension payments coming back in 2024. It also reflects the pressure we're feeling on maintaining current services with inflation, inflationary pressures, and the cost of more competitive wages. And lastly, as the mayor and Ms. Stoudemire discussed, we're providing relief to our taxpayers by reducing the debt millage by two mills over the next two years. And with that, we're, uh, we'll be pleased to take the council members' questions. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Thank you all for the presentation. And we will now go straight to questions from my colleagues. And we want to um, limit our questions to two per council member. And we'll start with President Pro Tem Tate. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Well, two brief ones. Uh, sitting as the, the Chair of Planning and Economic Development Standing Committee, uh, and Ms. Mayor, you mentioned about the developments and how they've helped improve our overall you know, bottom line in terms of revenue. Uh, the challenge that uh, some of us have is how it doesn't necessarily include those individuals who are um, in the most need of affordable housing, right? So we have affordable uh, at many of these uh, top-tier developments, and they have affordable uh, units. But when we look at the, the true AMI of the average Detroiter, it's far lower than what we see. I mean, I'm not talking about the, the, the developments that we as a city target as fully um, uh, affordable. But what... what what, what's being done to determine who's actually getting those particular units uh, in those 
uh, top tier, again, affordable units. Are we seeing that these are Detroiters who are you know, moving uh, from one location to uh, those particular spots, or are we talking about other folks from outside of the city moving into those particular affordable units? Yeah, I think you're going to find that it's overwhelmingly Detroiters in some of these projects is a specific agreement that says they have to have been, they have to have lived in the city for a year. But I'd encourage you to talk to Donald Rencher and, and Julie Schneider, and they could take you through project by project uh, what are the requirements for Detroit residency and what's the actual experience. Because yeah, they never never say that in the, the committee, I'll tell you that. It's, it's more or less uh, these are affordable units that we're going to set aside at this rate, period. That's where we leave it. Okay, I know we're about to bring you one where it will only be offered to uh, the long-time Detroiters. Well, long time in terms of three years, okay. which is, to me, is not a long time. Okay, well, we, <laughs> we could discuss how many years is... Uh, yeah, three years, though. A long time. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing is I know that we had a challenge with the uh, census uh, undercount. Uh, $150 million uh, left on the table. Where's that stand? Uh, and uh, right now, does it look like we're going to... Be successful in that fight. The only people in the world that do not understand we have large numbers of folks moving into Detroit are the people at the Census Bureau. Uh, and so we've got litigation on, on multiple uh, fronts. Uh, uh, we know what happened in the 2020 count. The uh, administration at the time cut back the census takers uh, as the count was winding down. Uh, that's one set of litigations. The more bizarre uh, one is that the 2021 estimate, where we are together announcing new housing projects weekly, uh, said that we lost 7,000 people in one year. Uh, the U.S. Post Office, who's going door to door, said we added 4,000 more residents where they're delivering mail to uh, that same year. We have sued and asked for one thing. Show us the one-page formula you used to calculate the estimate in 2021. In the past decade, every year, a city could challenge the estimate, and the Census Bureau would give you the analysis, how many births, how many deaths, who moved in, income tax filing, whatever they used. I cannot get uh, that uh, analysis out of the current Census Bureau, and we're in federal court on it. In May, they're supposed to put in the 2022 estimate. They're promising us if we'd stop suing them, uh, they would give us the report in May. I'm not going to stop suing them because they took 7,000 people away with phantom math uh, in 2021. So all I can say is I am going to stay on this every day. Senator Gary Peters chairs the Oversight Committee over the Census Bureau. He's all over this. Um, but until we get the Census Bureau to release the formula they use for the 21 reduction, uh, I, I, I'm convinced at this point they're so embarrassed by the formula they'd rather have us attack them and sue them than just give us the piece of paper they always gave in the past. Um, so next month or two, uh, I think we'll have some insight one way or the other. Okay. Thank you. Madam President, I certainly have additional sure. questions, but I will I understand. Uh, yield the floor <laughs> to your uh, demand. <laughs> thank you, President Pro Tem. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Chairman Durha. Thank you, Madam President. Good morning, uh, Mr. Mayor. Good morning uh, to the entire team. A uh, couple highlights that we saw pretty good. Um, glad to see uh, an investment uh, in Project Clean Slate uh, chairing um, the Returning Citizens Task Force uh, sub or committee uh, for the city. We want to kind of double down on our efforts to be ensure or to ensure that we're helping those uh, with a true second chance. 
Um, my question comes is, I, I know we're looking at 600,000, which, which is a great increase, I think helps us reach more folks. Uh, what are some of the other efforts that we can focus on or, or what are we looking to focus on to ensure that we are letting uh, some folks who are returning citizens know uh, that we are a friendly hiring city, uh, that there are positions open that they can apply for, and how are we working to increase our connectivity to them uh, to get them into those jobs? Yeah, I, I, it's been a dramatic shift on the part of employers in the last five or ten years in the openness to hiring uh, returning citizens. And uh, we had some key manufacturing groups who went first, and they found that the returning citizens were the most likely to be at work, most likely to be on time. Individuals who thought, if I lost this job, I'm going to have a hard time finding another. And I think word has now spread uh, that, that uh, those who have served their time are most cases your most productive employees. And so we're really not having trouble getting employers uh, to be uh, background friendly. Uh, Nicole Sherrard Freeman can take you through a chapter and verse. We, we do need one correction in Lansing, and Carrie Jones, who runs Clean Slate, could talk to you. We're talking to legislators now, is that there was a glitch in the last expungement bill uh, that has made it uh, harder to get routine expungements through. Uh, and uh, maybe with your background in uh, the legislature, you can help us. But we could dramatically speed this up. But we're counting on the fact the legislature is going to fix that glitch. Uh, and the number of expungements are going to pick up, and that's a big part of why we're asking for $600,000 more. And uh, just uh, a follow-up really quick. Uh, I know we only have two questions. be interested to talk to you about housing as well, uh, because often we look at employment as one of the barriers for returning citizens, uh, but housing becomes a deeper conversation for stability uh, with some of our returning citizens. Uh, my second question is something near and dear to my heart as well, uh, as w uh, we partner with Council President Sheffield as well as uh, Pro Tem Tate uh, on our gun violence task force. Uh, public safety obviously is a huge issue, uh, not just here in the city of Detroit, throughout the country uh, right now. Uh, and there have been some opportunities, whether that you know be a jump start uh, to bring some of our community violence intervention folks to the table. Uh, what kind of what kind of initiatives that are we looking at uh, to increase those relationships and ensure that we are uh, tackling public safety? And I know you're probably going to lay some of that out in the state of the city, uh, but I, I, you know, I do want to have the opportunity to have those discussions as well for the public to let them know that we're serious about this and focused on it. Well, we've taken the work done by your task force, and we will be proposing an eight million dollar violence intervention strategy with community groups uh, in the uh, the next week, and you'll find that. And I know you know this. We've taken a number of your suggestions and incorporated them into what I think will be a, a, a plan people will feel good about. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Member Durhoff. Councilmember Johnson. Thank you, Madam President, and good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for the presentation. There were a number of things that were extremely positive, and um, I appreciate moving in the direction that we're moving in. Um, I, many of us talk about housing. And um, so I glanced through the information that was provided to us yesterday and see the construction and demolition uh, department um, and, and really want to focus on what we're doing to rebuild our communities. I know that, you know, we have a number of multi-unit uh, complexes that we're supportive of and we're moving in that direction. But when we think about our neighborhoods and how we, they were developed with single-family housing, um, 
and we are demolishing a number of properties and still looking to move in that direction. Um, would just like to understand what our thoughts are around uh, rebuilding our communities. Uh, well, Councilman Johnson, Councilmember Johnson, we're going to uh, steal your plan. Uh, so, as part of the uh, ARP funding that we'll be talking about. Uh, we are going to go down the road that you have proposed in paying uh, uh, community development organizations and nonprofits to take land bank houses, uh, give them money to fix them up on the condition that they rent them out uh, at a lower income rate uh, for a significant period of time. Uh, and so we're working intensely right now on uh, what you have proposed, and we'll have something ready shortly, but I think you'll be pleased with it. Okay, excellent. Um, looking, de definitely looking forward to that. Um, I would also, as I have a proposal, um, to do some infield building uh, that I think can be affordable, uh, and I will certainly connect with you and reach out to your team about how we do that uh, and how, as a city, we can support that just to make sure that we continue to uh, provide additional uh, housing opportunities at various levels. I look forward to that. Thank you. Um, also want to, I, I couldn't be here and not talk about uh, District 4 and uh, the water infrastructure. I have requested and am waiting to hear back from the Water Department on the full plan, uh, not only from the Water Department but from the Great Lakes Water Authority. Uh, but we know we've been seeing the backups occur more frequently. We've been seeing uh, climate change impacting our community uh, where we have rising um, water levels. Can, we, can you talk about um, a disaster mitigation plan that may be focused around um, basement backups and flooding and, and what we're doing to prevent it? Do we have any fr framework in place to immediately respond to those types of emergencies, considering that we will likely see one in the coming years? Uh, so th there's no doubt. I mean, we, we've had uh, uh, two once-in-500-year storms in the last uh, six years, and I, I don't have any confidence that it won't be repeated. Uh, Gary Brown can take you through the details, but conceptually, uh, in District 4, and much of this applies to other parts of the city, but District 4 is hit in two ways. One is the intense rainstorms that, that back up our combined sewer system into people's basements, but District 4 has the second problem in that in the summers in which the Great Lakes water levels are very high, uh, you have the flooding through the canals in the Jefferson Chalmers area. So you could have a time where the, uh, uh, that neighborhood could be flooded either from over the, the wall and the river or, or from the sky and the rain. We're going at it in several different ways. One is we're going into the storm sewers in those areas, cleaning them out where tree roots and the like have been blocking them uh, to get the sewers cleaned, get the storm drains cleaned, uh, and uh, we are really, MDOT is going to help enormously. What they're doing on 94 is going to build a huge amount of stormwater capacity uh, uh, right there. All of that is going to help. Then we're going to individual homeowners, and we're going at it in two different ways. One is we're doing the so-called check valves to stop it from backing up into your basements, but we found in many of these cases the problem is that their sewer line that runs from their house 
to the to the back alley to the drain is broken. So every time it rains, even if it's not a lot, it's backing up, and people don't have the money uh, to repair the lateral sewer lines. And so we've got significant sources of state and federal funds. We have a problem legally in, in giving a financial benefit to an individual as a city, but we've got a number of state and federal funds where we're going to be fixing thousands of those sewer lines. Uh, and so all of those things together, the individual house protection and the neighborhood protection between the storm sewers and the extra capacity, all of those things are going to have to uh, work together. Uh, but that last rainstorm, you know, we're designed for three inches of rain. The year, five or six years ago, we got four and a half inches. We thought it was the worst we'd ever seen. The last one was six inches. So we are now recognizing the fact we have to build an infrastructure system for the climate of the 21st century. Uh, and all of those pieces will be a piece of it, and Gary Brown can, can take you through it more, uh, more completely than I can. I appreciate that. Um, and I know that we have a number of things that we're working on to improve the water infrastructure, um, and that's going to take some time. Recognizing that, I also just want to make sure that we have a plan on how to respond the next time it happens, um, that the city collectively as a whole has a plan on how we respond to residents, providing support to them. Um, it may be being proactive and identifying some things that they should do if this occurs or unfortunately when this occurs again. Uh, so just want to make sure that we are working together to develop that plan so that we can immediately hit the ground and respond to our constituents who have dealt with this time and time again. I look forward to working with you on that. Thank you. Thank you. And very quickly, lastly, I just wanted to say thank you for um, responding to the master plan update. Uh, I know the RFP just closed, and our team is looking forward to uh, providing some insight as we move forward on um, what we'd like to see, just making sure there's a, a vast amount of community engagement as we move forward within that plan. So thank you all. Thank you, Madam President. All right. Thank you, Member Johnson. Member Calloway. Thank you, Madam Chair, and good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning Mayor Duggan. Um, of course, I'm thrilled about what's on page seven of this report, the property tax relief. You and I have talked about that, and um, you know, I, I'm really excited about that. I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of all um, taxpayers in the city of Detroit, so I'm really excited about talking about it further. Um, so I have a question about the freeway cleanup. I'm all about the beautification and blight um, remediation in the city. So are we using $6 million? Is that going to be reimbursable from the state or? So the, the state's idea of freeway maintenance is two grass cuts a year and pick up the garbage once every three months. Uh, and so the state of Michigan basically said to us, if you're not satisfied with that, take it over and pay for it yourself. So uh, once MDOT agreed to turn it over to us, we have a no, number of our legislators who are right now lobbying to pay that $6 million from the state of Michigan. EBDOT's a little angry about that. Uh, and so we will find out in the coming weeks in the, as we approach the October 1 state budget uh, whether we get that funding in there. But I can tell you our 23 legislators who represent a portion of Detroit are going to be fighting tooth and nail uh, to get state funding for that. In the meantime, though, we've got to start getting that freeway clean. It's just a question of uh, all of the money we spend in the neighborhoods. We cut the grass five times a year. We're, we're doing all these things, but 
Uh, when people drive down the freeway, they think it's the city of Detroit that doesn't care about all this garbage. Uh, and um, so right now, we're saying let's start with the general fund, and, uh, and I'm optimistic that our legislative delegation is going to take that burden on long term. Um, thank you. Thank you, Mayor Duggan. And then I have another question. It's a huge um, <clears throat> amount for public safety fleet and equipment, $13.5 million. Very little for affordable housing that I see here. Um, but um, $13.3 million for um, emergency demolitions, is that commercial properties and residential? No, this, this is to do the privately owned abandoned houses. Mm -hmm. So commercial demo has been approved in the past. The land bank demo has been approved in the past. We now are looking to the private, uh, privately owned homes, and this will allow us to move on those. And on your, your other issue, again, what you have today is the general fund budget. When we get to the uh, ARPA amendment, uh, I'm going to be recommending significantly more affordable housing money uh, be committed from the ARPA fund. So we're not neglecting it. It just comes out of a different source. Um, thank you. And uh, this is not a third question, but... Will we be able to? Um, it's, not, it's, like, it's like a sub. It's like sub under I like two. that. Yeah. Just real quick, real quick. Okay, so with the um, demolition of the privately owned properties, are we going after these um, res after these property owners to recoup our dollars? Because I see we we demolish a lot of co um, commercial properties in this city. We demolish a lot of residential properties. Are we going after the commercial property owners and the res and the residential owners to recoup the money that we're using to demolish in the, the first answer place? Is, Thank you. The, the answer is yes. So on the commercial side, we put liens on the property. We go after them with litigation. On the residential side, Conrad Mal and the team have identified individuals who own lots of these private properties. And we're going to file suit to recover against all of them. Now, you've got a bunch of abandoned houses that are privately owned with somebody who doesn't have two nickels to rub together. We're not going to sue people for the sake of, of suing them. Uh, but we are trying to assess those people who own these abandoned houses who have means, and we are going to go after them. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Member Calloway. Uh, Member Waters. Thank you. You know, when I was in... In school, having the last name W was always kind of last. By that time, everybody's asked all the questions. Well, <laughs> 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 almost. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right. So, oh boy. Okay. So, um, why don't we just talk about the the land bank then? Um, the direction. Um, the land bank, because in 2024, they're basically done. What direction are we going to be headed in with the with the abandoned vacant homes in their inventory? So by 2024, there won't be any abandoned vacant homes in their inventory by the end of the year anyway. But I'd encourage you to have these conversations with Tammy Daniels, who's just doing an outstanding job. The land bank should never have been in the demolition business. That was a federal requirement, and, and it was nothing but a headache for us. But now that Luan Counts and the city are doing demolition, we are seeing great leadership uh, from Tammy Daniels and the land bank in moving properties back uh, to private citizens, uh, maintaining those properties. And I think if you had a conversation with her, her as to her vision, uh, you'll be pleased. 
So just a comment on that, uh, Mr. Mayor. You, you know, most Detroiters just hate the land bank. Right. And, and, and sometimes we don't get the type of response and, and assistance from them on behalf of private citizens that we should. And, and it's pretty frustrating. So uh, you, you and I can share uh, stories, uh, but I've been in enough neighborhoods where I've stood with people and who've told me the land bank didn't respond on this or that, and I get on the phone and call, mm -hmm. and, and I get so angry when it's a simple problem that languished. I'm, I'm telling you what I am seeing. The anger toward the land bank was earned over a period of years. I see Tammy Daniels working hard to reverse that, uh, and, and I'd encourage you to, to spend some time because she has a lot to make up for. She knows it, mm -hmm. but I think she is genuinely trying uh, to move these properties uh, and change the land bank's reputation. And I'm getting, now I'm getting 25% positive, 75% negative uh, in inter land bank interaction conversations, which is quite a bit of movement from two years ago. Okay. Um, all right, so um, what's being done to, um, to train people for workforce development, but actually get them job? Because that's the, that's the key. Yeah. You know, we have some people complain that they go through the training, but they don't end up um, with jobs. So maybe there's something we need to do differently? Yeah, I, I think that may have been true in the past, but uh, Nicole Sherrard Freeman, we are not paying to train anybody unless somebody's looking to hire. And there's mm -hmm. a reason why the unemployment rate is, in the city has gone from 20% to 7% mm -hmm. in 10 years. It's because every single thing we've done has been to train and direct people for jobs that are being hired right now. And I don't know what the number is today, but we probably got 8,000 uh, open jobs in the city, and uh, and that team is trying to match them up. Uh, but I think it's a good conversation to have with Nicole Sherrard Freeman and the, the workforce team. Uh, I think you'll you'll feel really good that literally we do not train for a job if somebody's not hiring for it now. And there was a time, mm -hmm. this was my issue with the old federal program, the feds paid us. When I got here, and I, I don't go too far back, but if, the feds gave us an A on our workforce training program. Nobody was getting hired. And I actually sat down with the labor secretary, uh, Tom Perez. I said, how can we get an A when nobody's being hired? He says, well, you completed the trainings. They went out and did an interview. That, that was the federal standard for how you got measured. We just threw that out and said, I don't care what the feds say is successful. I don't want us training for any job that somebody's not hiring. And if somebody comes in and, and is turned down in an interview, we follow up with the employer. Was there something about that candidate that we need to retrain for the next interview? That's the kind of work that's coming out of Detroit at work right now, and it's making a difference. All right, so not a question, just a comment. So we look forward to continuing to work with you on housing initiatives. You know, have to tell you about some of the things that we saw this past week as well, okay? Um, and I'd like to see some of those things happen here in the city. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Member Waters. Uh, Member Santiago Romero. Uh, thank you, Madam President. Good morning, everyone. Morning. When it comes to climate and environmental justice, a number of us did just come back from Seattle where they have had years of recycling, composting, and doing development that includes requirements that go beyond LEED certification. Are we going to see any investment in climate resiliency, infrastructure, or environmental protections for our residents who have already experienced negative climate impacts? We do have a climate resiliency action plan. Are we going to use it? Why haven't we? Well, we have. I mean, it's a, it's a huge point of emphasis. So Tricia Stein has uh, moved from the chief of staff job uh, to this role uh, to activate all these things. We're about to hire a permanent sustainability director. Uh, uh, the 
mobility team is actively engaged in uh, a program right now uh, where we are going to rapidly roll out uh, charging stations to support electric vehicles. We're talking to DTE about more solar fields like the one we have at 96 in Greenfield. And is it possible to power all Detroit buildings uh, off of alternative energy? All of these things are going on. It's a huge point of emphasis. Uh, and uh, I, I think we feel like uh, we're headed the right direction. And I think uh, Director Stein could fill you in on the details. Great. And it was good to have her with us during that trip. Regarding public health and safety, I have been working closely with our police chief, our deputy mayor, member Durhall, and others to discuss offices of violence prevention or a non-police response program for nonviolent mental health calls. I traveled with our deputy in Forest Detroit to D.C. last year to learn about the Office of Violence Prevention and the opportunities that it could bring. Has there been any changes, I'm sure you, you can share what these are, to the city's organizational chart to bring these solutions forward? Um, will we see any of this reflected in our budgets, and, the, and will it include the $8 million that you just announced? Yeah, so there are, in my mind, two separate pieces. One is there's the violence prevention with the activist group who have a history in the neighborhood of interacting with these individuals. Deputy Mayor Todd Bettison has taken that on as his mission and is doing it. The second piece is uh, what do we need to do with mental health uh, response? Uh, and I sat with the uh, executive director of the uh, uh, Detroit uh, Wayne County uh, mental health group, DWIN, uh, last week. Tricia Stein, this is her other charge. She has two charges, climate change and mental health. Uh, and we have got to have options that are more than community care. Uh, in 1992, John Engler shut down La Lafayette Clinic uh, and put people on the street. We all protested. I protested. It's 30 years later. There's a time we stop complaining about John Engler and a time we start to actually act and fix the problem. Uh, and so I think you're going to see a good alignment between DWIN and the city of Detroit uh, to provide a much broader uh, effective care. We just had an incident a couple days ago with two of our officers injured. But the situations we're seeing where individuals have multiple contacts with the mental health system, it isn't addressed. And then at a snapping point, you ask a police officer uh, to try to undo uh, a year or two of damage, of failure of mental health services, you're asking a lot of the officers in that uh, situation. So, um, but again, I would encourage you to talk to Director Stein, uh, but you're going to see something, I would say, in the next month come out from the administration in DWIN uh, for some real change in the mental health uh, services. Great. Thank you. I've got a lot of ideas around that as well. And just a quick note. Um, Grateful for the conversation around housing because it's very important for all of us. I did pass a resolution last year requesting a housing pilot program with the Detroit Land Bank, which I believed we were already piloting. Um, so I would like to hear some of those updates separately because we are all interested in ensuring that our residents are able to not just rent but to buy homes as well to help them with generational wealth. Thank you, Madam President. All right. Thank you, Council Member. Council Member uh, Young. Thank you, Madam President. Mr. Mayor, good to see you. Appreciate having everybody here. <clears throat> I just wanted to ask you, uh, I just met with a ceasefire uh, last week, and uh, they were talking to me about these are violence interrupters, so people that actually go out there and talk to people who be the victims of violence, but also talk to people who are perpetrators of the, in the gang community, things of that nature. And what they were looking for is safe spaces, a place where people can actually meet and they know that they're going to be safe. 
People who are in the gangs are going to be safe. People who are victims of violence are going to be safe. And so I was wondering, is safe spaces a part of your $8 million plan for uh, violence prevention? So we'll roll it out in details, but basically we are going to let the groups come forward with their vision on what they need. These groups who are interacting with the individuals every day who know uh, what's in their, their hearts and what we need to do uh, are going to come up with a proposal. And if safe space, spaces are something that's needed, rather than have the government say to them, give us a program for safe spaces, we're going to say to them, you're responsible uh, for the intervention. You bring us the plan. And I would expect to see safe spaces be a part of that, but I'm really reluctant to tell them what to put into to their proposals. Okay. Thank you. And then my second question, uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, research shows that basic literacy is a key to adult success. Right. And so is there a plan outside or partnering with DPSCD in, or maybe even using the Office of Early Education to promote more literacy, more learning? And then I also, I guess it's part of my 2A question, mm -hmm. but uh, I also just wanted to ask, do we have the metrics of by how many people are actually more literate what does that do in terms of reducing the racial wealth gap? What does that do in terms of reducing unemployment? What does that do in terms of reducing crime? Do we have those type of measurements? And do we connect that to the actual budget so people can see that we're not just talking about dollars, we're actually getting the investments that we're making are actually impacting people in a real way? So let me see if I can answer 2A, B, C, and D. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh, <laughs> Got a little carried away uh, there. Uh, so the answer to that is we, we do. In fact, the data will show you, for example, that if you today read below a sixth grade level, but you get to your high school or GED degree, you make $30,000 a year more the rest of your life. And Nicole Sherrard Freeman can talk to you about that, but it is... Uh, life-changing? And the answer is yes. We have two levels of literacy programs. We have one program that's in partnership with DPSCD. We actually took their adult literacy teaching staff, uh, moved them to our center, and we're paying our residents $10 an hour to take the class, and then we're supplementing that with a number of private agencies. Uh, and if you've been unemployed for six months, we'll supports you with an additional $600 a month in the Jumpstart program, as you well know, right. uh, to get you in a position to really uh, get started on that career. It is life-changing uh, to be able to do this. And, and Nicole Sherrard Freeman's fond of saying, I don't care if you're 24 years old and looking for your, a job or you're 60 years old and want to be able to read to your grandkids. There is value in this community in the literacy program, and we are paying anyone who wants it $10 an hour. Uh, you can do it at home or you can do it in person uh, to come in and learn, and, and we're going to continue to expand this. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Member Young. Um, so I just wanted to raise, uh, again, the retirees. And so, first of all, very proud that we are prepared to make the uh, pension cliff uh, payment starting in this fiscal year. But oftentimes we are asked, what more can we do? What more can we do for our retirees? Um, I'm hearing more about restoration of cost of living adjustments. Um, we're oftentimes told that we can't do anything because of the court order that's in place. But I think what our retirees really want to hear is just the plan. You know, when that court order ends um, and what is the plan to at least bring in some type of restoration for our retirees? So if you could just speak to that. So I don't have the answer yet, but I, I expect if, if we don't hit a recession and a drop in revenues, I would hope when I'm sitting here presenting the 24-25 budget, because you're right, we cannot change by court order 
the uh, payments to retirees or to any other creditors until the second half of 24. So when I am presenting to you the 24-25 budget, uh, we're going to have to think through two things. One is our existing retirees, who we haven't had a cost of living adjustment in 10 years. The second is our active employees. Mm -hmm. uh, our unions will tell you that they do not have competitive pensions uh, today. And so we're going to have to address both the pension issues for the active employees and the retired employees. It's going to be expensive. Um, and uh, Jay Rising and uh, Tanya Stoudemire and the team have got about 10 or 12 months to figure out a plan. Uh, but I'm certainly hopeful I'm sitting here a year from now. Uh, I'm sure whatever we do won't be enough, but we will have the legal flexibility to address it in next year's budget cycle. Got you. Thank you. That's good to know. So the second half of fiscal, well, next year, 2024, is when we'll be able to actually do anything for our uh, retirees, and a plan is being worked out to date. Just to make sure we're clear so that residents that are listening do understand that we are actively working on that. Um, the last part, of course, I have to mention right to counsel. Um, you know, this has been a priority of myself and my colleagues uh, as well, too. We passed the ordinance, and I know that there's nothing in the proposed budget for right to counsel from a legal standpoint. I know the uh, position is that we cannot use general fund dollars. And so I know we've had extensive conversations about what ARPA could look like for funding right to counsel. So if you could just provide an update on where we are to date. Uh, on funding, fully funding the right to counsel. So I, I'm, I'm going to keep saying things that, that people may not uh, want to hear, but let, let's talk about what we did. We started as an administration right to counsel in 2020 with the Sarah program. If you've gone into court on an eviction, we've had four lawyers in every single landlord-tenant courtroom. If you showed up without a lawyer, we provided you one. We successfully avoided 10,000 evictions during the COVID crisis with the Sarah funds. That coverage has continued with the help of the Gilbert Foundation and then with the ARPA money kicking in from the city. But uh, despite what some of the coverage has been, we have had four lawyers in every landlord-tenant courtroom uh, continuously to be there to represent you. The demands are going up because as the docket has opened up, they've gone now to six landlord-tenant courtrooms. They may add more, which means we are going to have a need for more lawyers. I'd say a couple of things about this, and we're going to have to work it out for ARPA because Conrad Malik can go through this more clearly than I can. But the lending of credit law in the state of Michigan prohibits cities from providing benefits to private individuals, not counties, not states. And that's been true for the last 100 years. If you, the, the way the state is structured, whether it was uh, a food assistance, general assistance, uh, whether it's the attorneys to pay if you're charged in a criminal case, those have been funded at the state and county level. At the city level, the cities are responsible for the public services, the garbage pickup, the police, the fire, etc. And so city governments are not allowed to use general fund for, for things that benefit a, a, a private individual. I have not understood from the beginning why the right to counsel focus was on the one level of government that can't use its general funds. This could have been done at the county and state level with no legal problem. But here's what we have to decide together, and, and we're going to have an American Rescue Plan amendment coming, uh, but that ARP plan is going to last for two more years after this year. Uh, we cannot build up some big program 
that is going to collapse because it can't be funded uh, two years from now. And so we're going to have to find the right balance between ramping up to coverage the, cover the additional courtrooms, which I support, but we funded the Grow Detroit's Young Talent for years off of philanthropy, uh, and, uh, and over time philanthropy has waned. Uh, and so we need to figure out how right to counsel, as it's done now, what's the long-term funding? Is it county? Is it state? Is it philanthropic? We can continue it with ARP money for the next couple of years, but I'd like to do it in a way that we have a plan uh, that long-term doesn't cause the program to come to an end. All right. Well, thank you for that, and I am looking forward to having something in the ARPA amendment that addresses the funding for Right to Counsel. And I think with the new leadership in Lansing, it's a great opportunity to pursue uh, an additional stream of funding through the state to support the long-term sustainability of Right to Counsel in the city of Detroit. So I uh, appreciate your work, and I know we have been in constant communication around Right to Counsel, so I know you guys are committed to getting this, this thing done and funded. So. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. I know you do have to leave. Uh, thank you. I got a, a manufacturer and a meeting right now that I hope is going to bring us hundreds of jobs. But All thank right. you very much, and you, you're in very capable hands here, Freddie. All right. Thank you. We appreciate you guys. Um, any additional presentations before we move to our general public comment? No? Okay. All right. So we will now move to um, public comment. And how many hands do we have virtually? Good morning, Madam President. We had uh, 29 hands raised before you cut off public comment. All right, and we have um, about 20 people in person, so we'll do a minute for public comment. And we're going to start with Jim Dwight, followed by Tyre Myers-Phillips, and followed by Kia Mathis. And Mr. Watson, as we're hearing the comments, if you can kind of um, write down the general ideas so that we can respond to any questions that may come up as well. Jim Dwight. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> there are 21 eviction cases filed every day at 36 District Court. I know you've heard this before, but there's an article in the Toledo Blade that one year into Toledo's right to counsel, of the 139 cases so far, 88% of those cases were successful in avoiding eviction. That's uh, 177 adults and 190 children were able to stay in their homes. Gosh, and it was general fund money, by the way. If Toledo can make a right to council work, I think we can in Detroit. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people staying in their homes. That's low-income housing right there. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you, Mr. Dwight. Tanya Myers-Phillips. Good morning. Tanya Myers-Phillips, Detroit Right to Council Coalition, lifelong Detroit resident. I'm gravely disappointed in what I heard, which seems like an attempt to kick the can down the road yet again when the needs of low-income residents face an eviction in this city, which is unacceptable. We have an eviction housing crisis. 10% of our population, if nothing else is done, if this can continues to be kicked down the road, will face eviction. 25% of our richer population will face eviction. It is our problem. It's Detroit's problem, and we ought to own it and take care of our citizens. 
We've already done a study that talked about the effectiveness of the rights of counsel. We've already provided a legal opinion on the lending of credit argument. $5 million for the Housing Coalition, anybody with lived experience or professional experience would not stand behind that number. It's inadequate and it's an insult. We need that $12 million in Member Romero's resolution this year. People shouldn't have to wait till the fall and $27 million next year if we're serious about this. And that comment is to the mayor and his administration. Thank you, Council, for your ongoing support. Thank you. Thank you. John Laszlo. And Ms. Mathis, you can go right ahead as he comes up. Hello, my name is Kia Mathis. I'm a resident of City Council District 6. I am one of, I'm one of the tenants in your majority renter city. Um, I support the recommendations from the Right to Council Coalition, which immediately asked for $12 million. We all know that $5 million from the fall of 2022 was not enough. It was nowhere near enough. Now, the Right to Council was a tool that limits or prevents evictions and also homelessness. Um, as you all have seen that in your community. So the Right to Council Coalition recommends that we have $12 million immediately, and they also recommend that we have $27 million needed for next year in order to support this tenant population. Now, the recommendations above is, in fact, a just thing to do in the face of inequity. The recommendations above is a just step to take in a city where 53% of everybody here is a tenant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Cecily Allen, followed by Ronald Foster. Sorry, go right ahead. Mr. Laszlo, you can go right ahead. Okay, my name is John, and I have two issues. One with Detroit Mafia, which wants to take out $629 million from our budget, or 25.64%. And that means that we work over a quarter of our life as slaves to the Detroit Mafia. If we would have to count the $629 million at $1 per second, it would take about 20 years to count, which means that we pay about $1,000 to $2,000 per resident or five to $10,000 for a family of five to the water mafia which makes the life impossible in Detroit and businesses close down because they can't pay the water bill. In 1950, Detroit had about 2 million people, and the water budget that I found online was about $1.8 million. Today, we have less than half of the people, yet the water mafia budget is about 400 to 500 times greater. If Detroit pays $629 million... Thank you. Thank you, sir. Sorry, that's your time. If you want to leave your comments with us, we'll make sure that we sure, receive those. Sure, I prepared copies. Yep, we'll get them for you. For the council and for the mayor's office, please. All right. Thank you, Thank sir. you. Thank you. Appreciate you, sir. Ma'am? Thank you and good morning. Uh, my name is Cicely Allen. I'm a resident of the city of Detroit, District 1. And I'm here about the Detroit Right to Council Ordinance. Uh, what we know is Detroit is a population of mostly renters, and that over 22,000 Detroit residents face eviction in 2022. 30% of evictions are black women heading households. 
And these evictions cause negative impacts to our children. They affect their mental, emotional state, their health, and their education. And we are facing an eviction crisis. We have to take the appropriate actions and appropriate the necessary $12 million for the remainder of this fiscal year and the $27 million for next year to fund the legal representation and outreach for the Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition. Detroit Right to Counsel Ordinance. This could prevent tens of thousands of Detroiters from experiencing disruptive displacement and improve our communities and the stability that we have. If this doesn't happen, you know, we're going to continue this, this, cycle, this cycle, this vicious cycle. It's close to 30% of Detroiters at, that are renting and facing eviction this year and, and next year, close to 30% facing eviction. So we have to do the right thing. Thank Make you. sure that the Detroit Right to Counsel is Thank fully you. funded. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Uh, Ronald Foster. Good morning. Um, first off, balanced budgets don't bring visible results. Um, and those policymakers that are making budgets should have somebody on that board that represents their constituents. If the budget stays the same, then the condition stays the same. Poverty, unemployment, disease, ignorance are the conditions that plague our community and they have been identified after 1967 riots after commission by Lyndon Johnson. Those, that commission went unacted even till today. Um, we need more investment in the lives of our children in our community. I'm grateful for the council members up there, Ms. Sheffield, Ms., um, Mr. Young, and Ms. Walters, and their workforce um, um, trades that they have offered to the community. Those type of programs need to be given directly to the grassroots here. So when we talk about budgets up top, how are the grassroots going to get um, be directly affected by those? Um, animal care, when our children are living like animals and dying like animals in our street, is insufficient. We need our leaders to get more advocate for more funds and not uh, continue to live on despite of and we can see because of. All right. Thank you, Mr. Foster. Joe McGuire. Good morning. Uh, I've come to here uh, to talk about the right to counsel ordinance that the city passed and got a lot of national press, uh, positive press about Detroit joining the many other American cities that have uh, started trying this idea. Uh, unfortunately, Detroit has not yet funded the right to counsel ordinance. And I'm an attorney who's represented tenants in Detroit's district court for over a decade. Uh, and I can tell you that the implication uh, that we have, well, we have four lawyers in these tenant courtrooms, uh, and so everyone's getting a lawyer, that's an absolute lie. That's not how it works, and I've been in the courtrooms. We, we have as lawyers who have, have to represent so many tenants that they're there in the courtroom, but the most they can do is maybe talk to a tenant for 10 minutes in a Zoom breakout room. That's not representation. When you have legal aid lawyers who represent 300 clients, that's not really representation. Uh, so Detroit needs to make this right to counsel ordinance that it passed uh, democratically not a sham. And uh, it needs to make it a meaningful reality. We have, uh, you know, we have the science, Thank the data, you, expert Thank opinions, you. previous cities that have tried it. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's get it rolling. Thank you. Rachel Udabi. Hi, y'all. My name is Rachel Udabi, and I'm with We the People Action Fund. And I'm here to first start by saying that we are here to fight for the dignity of Detroiters. And that involves, like my former speakers have said, 
funding the right to counsel ordinance sustainably. This is a city issue and this should be funded by the city and consistently funded by the city. Um, but not only that, I'd like to highlight what uh, Councilmember Durhal brought up, the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, um, and it will be getting $8 million of funding, but safety is priceless. And so I would like us to continue to figure out how we're going to fund a, uh, our Office of Violence Prevention and make it happen so that we can be working on things preventatively instead of reactively. Um, and finally, I'd like to say I know balancing a budget is hard, um, but an average Detroiter's household budget is 0.002% of what budget y'all have to work with. And it was really hard for them to have to rebuy their groceries, pay for a hotel this past week because of DTE's outages. So I would like to see how we can hold them accountable as well. Thank you all. All right, thank you. Kai Bowman. Good morning, esteemed council. My name is Kai Bowman and I'm the COO for the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. I'm here today to advocate for the establishment of an Office of Small Business Affairs. It's no secret that small businesses are the backbone of the city of Detroit, employing an estimated 50% of the citizens employed in the city. We recognize the work of the DEGC and our district business liaisons who do a fine job engaging our small businesses. But that's seven people to serve over 20,000 businesses in the city. We need an office in the mayor's office who wakes up every day thinking about strategies on how to attract, retain, and engage small businesses in Detroit. The administration has done a much needed and great job of rolling out the red carpet for corporations to come into the city and employ Detroiters. We'd like that same investment, energy, and dedication for our small business community. You each have been emailed, as well as the mayor, a memo detailing our request. On behalf of the Alliance, I thank you for your time and consideration. All right, thank you. Danny Hopkins. Yeah, um, good morning. Um, I'm a Detroit resident. I'm also with Michigan United. Um, I'm here today, and Michigan United joins the Detroit Right to Council Coalition in demanding that you allocate $12 million more million this year for the right to, to fund the Right to Council Ordinance and $27 million next year. Housing is a human right, and every eviction is a policy failure. Thank you. All right, thank you. Malik Shelton. Yes, um, first of all, I'd like to say that it's very disrespectful. If not, if it's not illegal, it should be illegal to have these budget hearings. <clears throat> and you have, so they tell me over, Duggan keeps saying that the population of Detroit is increasing. So even more reason to have something as important as budget hearings where you're talking about the resources and the revenue and the tax dollars of Detroiters. And they can't even attend the budget hearing meeting. You have it in this little small room. Unless or until you have some room that can accommodate the residents and taxpayers, I think it's very disrespectful, and it should actually be illegal if it's not. We have Steve Watson, Jay Rising. Uh, your colleague, uh, John Neglick, said that the residents and taxpayers of this city, effectively what he said was that y'all can issue billions of dollars worth of bonds on them that they have to pay back, and they don't desire, deserve, or require a notice. Do you concur with that? I'd like to know your opinion on that because I have a whole suitcase full of evidence that proves that that's a lie. Thank you, Mr. Shelton. Danielle North. 
Good morning, Council. Thank you for the time. I am here representing as the Vice President of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance Board and as a business owner in the city in the Rosedale Park community, owning the first and only indoor playground in the city, Kids Kingdom, um, which is also a licensed child care center. And I'm here to um, advocate for the small business office. My brick and mortar business has been open for seven years. And because I'm a savvy owner and I understand um, who the trusted connectors are, I know where to go. I actually have an op-ed in the free press right now discussing tangible support, which is what small business owners need. And having a small business office would represent the kind of tangible support we need. I'm also a Detroit Means Business Small Business Owner Advocate. And so I understand what the DEGC is doing, believe in that work, have set on that um, council for three years, but we still need coordination at the city government level, and that is lacking. So I'm here um, advocating for that office. Thank you. Thank you. Summer Boxley. Good morning, council. My name is Summer Boxley, and I'm the policy coordinator for the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. I'm here to advocate for a small uh, office of small business affairs in the executive branch. Small businesses uh, support continues to be a critical need in the economic development of our city. We represent over 700 small business owners in the city of Detroit. It is based on our due, due diligence, research, and advocacy for our members and the small business community as a whole that we humbly submit this budget request for the establishment of this office uh, for workforce development, best practice research, city improvement processes, and more. This office will focus on engaging, retaining, and attracting small businesses in the city of Detroit. As such a large portion for Detroit's economy, entrepreneurs deserve a strategic representation at the highest level of government. Thank you. All right, thank you. Bob Carmack? Yes, leadership. That's what's the problem here. We need leadership. You need to audit all the departments. You need to audit the land bank. You need to audit the bonds. You need to audit the water rain up. You need to see where all the money is for since he's been here in 2014. I went to Councilman Durhall's committee. In the people mover, money's missing. They don't know where the checks are. They don't know where the money is. They did an audit on it. If he don't know where that $7 million is, right, he screwed up at DMC. He overcharged Medicaid and Medicare. He had to pay back to the U.S. government. You need to audit all these departments. You need to audit everything he's did. You need to find the money. That's what you need to do. Before he comes here and gets the money, you need to find out where the money went. And that's, you know, that's what it is. So you need to investigate this stuff and try to do the best you can. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Carmen. Nora Rodriguez. Hello. Uh, good uh, Good morning, and my name is Nora Rodriguez. I'm with Congress of Communities, and I'm a community organizer. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the council members that were there for the task force meeting for our skilled trades. That was an amazing event uh, with so many opportunities. Uh, also, I am with the Right to Council. I'm here to ask for more money for the residents here in Detroit that have been here for generations. Um, it's traumatic to get evicted. A lot of children are probably going to be suffering a lot of mental health issues if they are not already. And this is something they carry with them throughout their life. So um, if this is the right thing to do, which I think the world knows is right to have housing as your human right, um, please give them that money. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Cunningham. 
Good morning, Honorable Body on Facebook, Forest of Serbians Cunningham, and 313-444-9114. A lot of people have been calling and texting and letting me know they have ridden the bus in the city of Detroit. So anybody under the sound of my voice on the weekends and after 6 p.m., please ride the coaches. I would like to say to Councilwoman Gabriela Santiago Romero, uh, how you doing? And um, this budget season, so we talked about um, getting flyers mailed to the people that take paratransit since, like, I, I pass out flyers about the, the DDOT beatings, but I can't pass out to those who are doing fixed routes straight to their home. The, the only way to reach them is the information they already have, DDOT, and to uh, send out mailers for souls who are not technologically savvy. Um, and w when our meeting together, we had talked about it, and I'm, I'm sure that you didn't forget, so I appreciate you. And if anybody needs any hand warmers or bus tickets to get back, just let me know. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Cunningham. And thank you for those hand warmers. I'm telling them that people that you that you gave them to me. <laughs> Mr. And Cunningham, that, appreciate we, we appreciate you. <laughs> uh, Mr. Overwith. <clears throat> okay, Detroit. What up, though? Now, what we have is the biggest tax robbery committed against black citizens and residents of the United States of America in this century here in Detroit. The issuance of these illegally issued municipal bonds that total into now into the billion, over a billion dollars, approved by Scott Benson, he not here, James Tate, Mary Sheffield, is the greatest crime against black citizens and residents in the city of Detroit that I've ever witnessed in four decades. Not notifying us of those 13 issuances of bonds violated our voting rights. You denied us the opportunity to vote on where our taxpayer dollars go, and that's a constitutional right that's granted to us by the United States Constitution. And Mary James and wherever Scotty is did us bold. Right. Thank you, Mr. Overwith. Ms. Dara. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hello, Cindy Dara. Uh, I'd like to know how many workers we had, city workers, before and after the pandemic, and how much we spend on contractors, and how much, how many jobs in house could we create with what we're spending on contractors, and that if we created them in house, that would include benefits like pension, health care. Uh, and uh, I just, I talked to Securitas downstairs. They're only getting $13 an hour now. They're working for Securitas, which is an illegal union of my, uh, the guy should be in jail, I think, the one that ran that. They didn't get any representation. They have no benefits, no representation when they have a gr grievance. They work, uh, they're contracted through the building authority, but I still think overall, in the city, and I'd like to have you do recycling. I want the people to be able to actually create new stuff for the, this budget and substitute it for what you've already been given. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Dara. So it's not too late, I hope, that people can bring in their projected budgets for what they want. Thank you, Ms. Dara. All right, that concludes our public comment in person. We will turn to our virtual public comment. Good morning, Madam President. The first caller is the mayor, city council are robbing us.
Good morning. Our Good morning. Fourth, the Affordable Housing Task Force here. Doctor, uh, Mr. Uh, Duggan has overseen the theft of over a billion dollars for of, uh, Detroit Black citizens. Illegal property taxes, thousands, thousands of illegally foreclosed homes, making thousands of families homeless. Uh, you need to, he needs to give that money back. It's all a sinister and savvy uh, Negro removal program. This is all on purpose. That's why he won't fund the right to counsel. He, we can talk to him blue in the face, but he's not going to do that. Any kind of CEO that loses a billion dollars of the uh, shareholders' money would be replaced. And you all look at him, and, and I'm, I'm looking at you. You, you look like you're scared of him. You look like you want to cow down and bow down to him. We own Detroit, not Mike Duggan. The, uh, vote this down. Vote his budget down until you pay us all back and do justice to black All right, thank you. The next caller is Yvonne Jonesy. Listening to the mayor, I'm wondering what city was he describing? Detroit has some serious problems and they have not been addressed. They're not being addressed by this budget. I want to see real low income housing, the right to council funded. I want to see mental health really funded. I want to see some of those ARBA funds used to pay direct inflation payments to residents and retirees. I want to see a true picture of the unemployment rate in Detroit because it is not 7%. Our mayor is not connected. Do not approve this budget. We need a real budget that will address the needs of the people. We need to decrease the funding to the police department and increase funding to the needs of the people of this city. Our mayor is non-responsive. To say that a long-term resident is... All right, thank you. The next caller is Marguerite Maddox and Scarlett. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Good morning. Okay. Number one. You guys, uh, this, 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 because Thank you, Ms. Maddox. The next caller is Mike Shane. 
<clears throat> Good morning, uh, City Council. Um, thank you for the opportunity to uh, give you my thoughts for a minute. I'm here to support the uh, calls made by other members of the Detroit Right to Council Coalition. I think it's important that we fund this. Um, the return on investment, which this is something that I addressed to Mayor Duggan, the return on investment by funding uh, Right to Council fully is about three to one. From an economics point of view, this means that we should absolutely fund this. It's a net return to the city of Detroit in terms of saving taxpayer dollars. I find it disingenuous that the mayor says that um, we can't use private funds to help, or we can't use tax funds to help private citizens. Yet we see examples year after year of millions, if not billions of dollars being given to corporations. Isn't that the same thing? Just take some of that money and redirect it to the people of Detroit. Thank you. Thank you. The next caller is William M. Davis. Good morning. I am very disappointed. I was hoping to hear something more positive more as it reflects city Detroit retirees. Since the Detroit bankruptcy that was filed in 2013, Detroit retirees have lost over 30% of our purchasing power. Yet, our mayor, who was a multimillionaire who grew up in a prominent Republican family in the suburbs, his salary and benefits have increased over 30%. How is this fair? How is this fair? Is this really a black and white situation? Do the city council, who are not millionaires, just want Detroit retirees to die? You know, the, the, the city council need to push the mayor, and y'all need to step up and start doing something for us now. Since the time y'all been in office, a number of city retirees have died, and we are going through severe hardship. But yet, you know, y'all act like Marie Antoinette, you know, let them eat cake. We don't have any crumbs. This is horrible. Something needs to be done and will be done one way or the other. Thank you. The next caller is Betty A. Varner. Good morning, Ms. Varner. Hello? Yes, good morning. I'm sorry, I couldn't unmute. Good morning. Uh, yes, this is Betty A. Varner. I'm here again advocating for seniors and uh, people who are disabled to help us with our challenges of uh, being able to continue to live in our homes, to help us make our homes handicapped accessible, including uh, walk-in showers. We need ramps. Uh, we need uh, help to uh, let us continue to be in our homes so that we can continue to support the neighborhoods that we love. Uh, thank you for this consideration. All right, thank you, Ms. Varner. The next caller is Karen Winston. Hello? Yes, good morning. Yeah, good morning, how are you? Great, thank you. Thanks. 
Um, yeah, I want to speak about, um, you know, everything we just heard. It was a crock, and I think you guys all know it was a crock. Um, as it relates to um, uh, the storm, you know, all these things they're doing on the east side, you can do all those things. You can make, you know, uh, uh, catch basins to catch the water on I-94. But if you don't have power, if the power goes out and you don't have a plan B for keeping power, you're still going to flood. So do all those things and then let your power source go away and then see where you're at. One thing. I listened to all that crap yesterday for hours and hours and not one reference was made to accommodations for the disabled or the seniors. There's new laws that says every plan you do, you make has to have plans for disabled and seniors. So don't let these yahoos come and tell you that, oh, it's an old building. Then find another building. Go somewhere else. So that's my point on that. And I'm going to write you a whole lot more. Thanks. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. The next caller is Karen Hammer. Good morning. As a 35-year Detroit resident, it is true that neighborhood stabilization and programs prevent homelessness and evictions. Right to counsel has been shown effective in other cities. Use the general fund, ARPA money, and budget surplus to appropriate money to the ordinance the city council unanimously passed that should have been implemented last October. $12 million now and budget $20 million for the next year. Rising evictions include many unjust uh, evictions that are from unscrupulous landlords who execute uh, their evictions, which RTC can prevent. Fully fund it with the Office of Eviction Defense and publicize contact information and website widely, collaborating with the Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition to maximize outreach. Keep data and share it on how it has been implemented. All right, thank you. The next caller is Stephen Howring. Awesome. Can I be heard? Yes, you can. Awesome. Um, so I hope to be seeing a major increase in DDOT funding this year. 20% of the city, a larger percentage than even Chicago, relies on public transit. But we fund it like 0.5% relies on it. I do think this current city administration is trying on like the... Um, previous two and same with council, but we need to do more. And what I said, and I'm going to keep saying this, our transit is as embarrassing as the 2008 lion season. You know, what I said yesterday, um, another reason younger people are moving to Chicago and New York is because, I mean, Detroit has a beyond deplorable transit system. Younger people want to take subways and live somewhere with a strong transit ecosystem where they don't have to own a car. The few University of Michigan students that stay in Michigan stay in Ann Arbor because they have a somehow adequate transit. All right, thank you. The next caller is Theo Pride. Uh, good morning, Council. Theo Pride, Budget Justice Coalition. Uh, I'd just like to highlight the process the city has laid out uh, for gaining insight into the budget priorities and, and needs of Detroiters. Um, I, I think the data clearly shows uh, in, in the budget priorities uh, forums held in all the districts that uh, Detroiters want housing, transit, 
um, in neighborhood investments, not not more demolition, not more downtown investments like the people mover. Um, affordable housing was prioritized in five of the seven districts. Uh, and this should come as no surprise, right, uh, as Detroit has a major shortage of uh, truly affordable housing. Uh, housing insecure residents can also benefit from a fully funded right to counsel. Uh, funding billionaires should, should not be a priority. Funding uh, these crucial programs uh, should, of course. Um, transportation is another priority, so I'm, I'm happy to see additional funding going to improve uh, pay for drivers. Uh, but more funds are needed to improve services. Uh, so residents have spoken. Uh, I think the data is there. You know our priorities, and I look forward to the upcoming budget hearings as you all craft a budget that works for all. All right. Thank you. The next caller is Linda Bowen. Good morning. I'm here representing the Budget Justice Coalition. I'd like to ask council to strongly take into account the community input collected from the city budget's priority process when determining the budget allocations for the next fiscal year. It is clear from the process that Detroiters have asked for affordable housing, improved transit services, and neighborhood investments. Detroiters have not asked for more demolition, downtown spending, and police. We feel the DDA should pay for downtown upgrades and the general fund should be used to invest in our neighborhoods. Please consider the following budget recommendations. 25 million to affordable housing to include home ownership. Uh, fully fund the right to council ordinance instead of funding billionaires. Uh, 120 million to transportation operations to increase the wages of bus drivers, 20 million investments in parks and recreation. Thank you so much. Thank you. The next caller is Angana Shaw, Michigan People's Campaign. Hello, I'm with Michigan People's Campaign and I'm speaking on behalf of the right to counsel. Despite the way that it was dismissively treated, you Oh, that right to counsel full funding. It was approved in May and it was supposed to be funded by October. If you can pay $13 million to demolish houses, you can put $12 million into a fund this year that helps people stay in the homes that they're in. This is not about deadbeat tenants. It's about tenants complaining about rats, cockroaches, mold, being evicted in retaliation. It's about tenants who can pay, but landlords who won't work with them. Lawyers can only keep tenants in their homes fairly. And we see that in cities where right to counsel is implemented, 70 to 90% plus get to stay in their homes. Evictions are violence. You say you wanna fight violence, you need to fight evictions. And nothing is more important for recession planning than supporting people in staying in their homes. Fund the initiative, put your money where your mouth is and stop trying to get away from it. We're not going away, we'll be back. The next caller is, oh, the next caller dropped off. Uh, the next caller is phone number ending in 534. Good morning, may I be heard? Yes, good morning. 
Okay, first of all, I'd like to say this auditorium alleged sound issue is scandalous. We waited a long time to get back into the Irma Henderson Auditorium. That needs to be investigated. Also, we need two minutes because this is our money and you work for us. You just got a pay raise. Um, number two, the mayor, like the police chief, can't seem to schedule time to listen to public comment. So that's pretty, uh, uh, well, that's awful. Uh, number three, who in the city, who, who told the mayor that Bob Carmack allegedly committed a crime? Number two, uh, the mayor told a couple Pinocchios, such as that the land bank demos were a federal requirement. That is not true. The Obama administration allowed them to divert hardest hit fund money that was originally intended to keep people in their homes to demolitions. So that wasn't true. Also, Tammy Daniels refuses to clarify and answer some questions for me. She, she needs to improve. Another uh, Pinocchio. All right. Thank you, Ms. Warwick. The next caller is Marie Shaheen, Street Democracy. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Good, mor uh, good morning. This is Marie Sheehan, attorney at uh, Street Democracy and with the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. I'm here today to support the uh, full funding of the Right to Counsel Ordinance. Um, I think it's really disappointing to see Mayor Duggan hiding behind this uh, lending of credit opinion and arguing that it's illegal to fund um, um, this ordinance, the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, Street Democracy, Detroit Justice Center, Sugar Law have all evaluated these claims and found that they're quite legally shaky. And so I think that this uh, 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 is more of a political objection than a legal one. And I think um, uh, that, uh, you know, he needs to move forward with fully funding um, uh, right to counsel and just want to echo the sentiments of others. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. The next caller is Lisa Franklin. Good morning, may I be heard? Yes, Ms. Franklin, we can hear you. Yes, good morning. Uh, oh, Madam President, she dropped off for a moment, but it looks like she's back. Okay. Hello? Yes. Okay, I can be heard? Yes, you can. Okay, great, good morning, thank you. Uh, Lisa Franklin, Warriors on Wheels, and I'd just like to uh, copy some of the sentiments of previous callers. Uh, with the $40 million surplus that the mayor mentioned, I would really love to see Right to Council um, funded because not only do we have families with women and children, but we've got people with disabilities who are at risk of being uh, evicted, and we do not have the infrastructure to support that. We don't want to see our streets littered and our bus stations uh, with, and I'm, excuse me for saying littered, but we don't want people with disabilities on the streets. I didn't hear anyone mention anything about the Office of Disability Affairs. I know that we have a letter out to support that, but we're only asking for $1.2 million to go into the ODA to support the residents with disabilities. We need more money into affordable housing, so that individuals who. Hey, thank you, Ms. Franklin. The next caller is Tamisha Pride. 
Oh, can I be heard? Yes, you can. Good morning. Um, I'm here representing the Budget Justice Coalition. We have community members throughout the city and intend to advocate for the city budget that serves the need needs of everyday Detroiters. Too often we've witnessed our tax dollars go to city projects and programs that caters to business interests of investors located downtown and ignores the hardworking Detroiters living in the neighborhoods. The DDA should be paying for downtown improvements, not our general fund. Any surplus dollars should be used to fund the budget priorities expressed by residents. This includes affordable housing, transportation, home repair, parks, and recreation. We offer budget following recommendations, $25 million for the affordable housing. A trust fund, fully fund the rights to city council ordinance. If you can fund billionaires, you can certainly pub, fund the public rights. All right. Thank you so much. The next caller is Frank Hammer. Greetings, council members and all who are attending this important meeting. Mayor Duggan claimed just an hour ago that he saved thousands of tenants from evictions. This does not square with data presented in a report by Michigan Public Radio last year based on an analysis done by Stout, a global investment bank and advisory firm. The report analyzed 30,000 recent eviction filings and found 4% of Detroit tenants had legal representation. <laughs> That's 1,200 tenants, not 10,000 as claimed by Mayor Duggan. That's compared, according to the same report, with 83% of landlords getting representation. <coughs> if council believed that this was adequate, you would not have passed the ordinance. Council should stand fast and fully found, fund the ordinance. It's shameful that Mayor Duggan won't fight for Detroiters and prefers to be an enabler for the landlords. I stand with the DRTC, fully fund the city's ordinance. Thank you, Mr. Hammer. The next caller is Bishop Herman Starks. All right. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Thank you. Uh, Bishop Herman Starks here. Um, I'm calling in on behalf of uh, Detroit Right to Council, uh, Michigan's People Campaign, of course, as well as myself, a bishop and a pastor. Um, when we think about this here, 70 percent of my uh membership and staff actually live in the city of Detroit and have been, some of them have been faced with um, these evictions and have uh, went through the process that that left them abandoned inside of these courtrooms. Um, we got to do more than $12 million, I think, or $13 million is which is needed in order for this to run fairly. And I think the citizens have spoken and said that this is what they want. So regardless to what Amir is saying at this point, maybe he, he needs to get with this uh with the uh, county to create a way that this can operate to be funded, but it definitely needs to be funded and to bring a proposal that has this, uh, that well, where this is not on the list, it's absolutely absurd. And it's a slap in the face for all those people that have already been evicted, people facing eviction and people that will be facing eviction. All right, thank you. The next caller is Renard Manchunsky. Hi, good afternoon. Can I be heard? Yes. 
Hi, good afternoon. My name is Renard Roshevsky. I'm a long-term Detroit resident and bus rider and resident of uh, District 6 and organizer with Detroit People's Platform. I agree with the Budget Justice Coalition's recommendation for a appropriation of at least $120 million out of the general fund for for DDOT because this will not only uh, attract more drivers, it would um, end this whole thing where we're subsidizing training for other transit departments. Like people literally work for DDOT for a little while, leave, and then go to other departments that are paying higher. We need to be competitive in that regard. Also need to ensure that drivers are safe um, by buying equipment, and even emergency buttons, defibrillators, all these things factor into operating costs um, that would uh, ensure that drivers are safe and passengers are safe as well, too. And look into our education partners like um, WC3D and our vocation education, um, where students can go right into a DDOT job with a pension, benefits, um, and no debt. Thank you so much. Thank you. The next caller is Alexa Eisenberg. Hi, can you hear me, Council? Yes. Thank you. Um, my name is Alexa Eisenberg. All right, I'm not sure if she went on mute. Oh, sorry, it muted me automatically. There you go. Right. Hear you. Thank you. My name is Alexa Eisenberg. I'm a resident of District 5, and I think as most of you know, I'm a researcher who has been gathering and analyzing data from the 36th District Court for the past three years. Um, and I'm here today, of course, to support the right to counsel. And, you know, I'm just struck by how much the mayor is winning and then battle of narrative around this, making it seem like the city's hands are tied and that the program is doomed to fail and that it must rely on, you know, funding from the Quicken Loans Foundation to to fund it. And that's just not, it, it, I'm, I really hope this body can do its utmost to get general funds spent on this program to ensure its sustainability and in the short term fight for ARPA dollars. You know, pre-pandemic, we all know 3% of tenants are getting representation. During the pandemic, that increased to about one in five tenants. With the mayor's budget, it's about 7%. That is not progress, it's not a right, and it's not what your body intended when it passed the law. All right, thank you. The next caller is Siri S. Good afternoon, Siri S. All right, Ari, if we can go to the next caller and come right back to Siri S, please. Okay, the uh, the only other caller who raised their hand before you cut off public comment is Ruth Johnson. Okay. May I be heard? Yes. Ruth Johnson, Community Development Advocates of Detroit. We demand that all budget decisions directly and equitably benefit Detroiters and Detroit organizations using general funds, budget surplus, and federal funds. We want this city to invest public funds, the people's money, our money, to address our housing needs and our community development needs. Invest in Detroiters who are nonprofit landlords, who are home buyers, 
homeowners, especially those facing and dealing with illegal overassessments, Detroiters who are facing or at risk of eviction, those Detroiters who want a comprehensive citywide master plan. General funds can be used for the Office of Eviction Defense to open it, to have a phone line, websites, to work with community members to make sure that people know their rights and what supports and services are available. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Um, and then the last caller who raised their hand before you cut off public comment is Siri S. All right, good afternoon, Ms. Siri S. Madam President, there is another one below with Siri Simpson, so I will I will try that one. Okay. Good afternoon. Are you showing her microphone unmuted? Uh, she would need to unmute herself, but yes, she has the ability to speak. All right, Miss Siri, uh, we're gonna go once, going twice. And Miss Siri, please feel free uh, just to submit your comments to uh, city council and the city clerk, and we will make sure that that is a part of the record. All right, so that will conclude our public comments for today. Uh, Mr. Watson, did you have any general responses to our public comment? Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Madam President. So, I mean, I think we heard a recurring theme around right to counsel and affordable housing, and as the mayor mentioned in his opening remarks, those are both items that we'll take up as part of an ARPA budget amendment that will be forthcoming, but during this process. Um, separately, we heard a lot about DDOT as well, um, and similarly, as the mayor had mentioned, you know, this budget has additional funding to make sure we're sustaining DDOT operations and sets aside dollars as we continue to negotiate on more competitive wages for DDOT. So, you know, we're looking forward to working through that issue with the council and with the, uh, the labor unions as we, uh, we tackle uh, pay for bus drivers. Um, we heard a little bit about the Office of Disability Affairs. Um, in this budget, the Office of Disability Affairs is budgeted uh, for its direct funding at $750,000, which is an increase over last year's $575,000. Uh, and the city um, you know, makes uh, uh, every effort through its capital improvements and its facilities to ensure uh, ADA compliance and improvements are made there. Um, beyond that, we were, I was pleased to hear um, folks participate in our public budget forums that were back in the fall. Uh, we will be releasing our community outreach report as part of this budget process and as part of this budget submission uh, shortly. And I wanted to make sure the public knew that while it's not on the website, sitting here right now um, following this public meeting, we'll be posting all of the budget materials that have been submitted to City Council on our website, which is DetroitMI.gov budget. All right, thank you. Uh, I did just want to mention um, we did receive uh, an email regarding the increased request for the Office of Disability Affairs. I want to acknowledge receipt of that. Um, also from the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance, we also did receive a uh, letter requesting the creation of the Office of Small Business Affairs. So I would like to uh, recognize receipt of that. 
Um, and then also, as we are beginning our deliberations around right to counsel, uh, we have received a legal opinion already from our law department and corporation counsel that we cannot use general fund dollars. However, I would like to motion that we receive a written opinion from our legislative policy division as well, whether or not general fund dollars can be used to fund right to counsel. Is there a motion on to do so? Motion. All right, thank you. Hearing no objections, that motion is approved, uh, and we will also put that in writing as well, Mr. Corley. Um, any additional questions or comments? Yes, President Pro Tem Tate. Yeah, I just wanted to get uh, on the record, you know, there was a talk about the Office of Small Business Affairs, and mm -hmm. that was not addressed, so what's, what's the thought? What's the consideration, concern? Uh, through you, Madam President, to pro tem Tate. Uh, yes, I mean, so that was the first time I had heard that specific request. So certainly looking forward to review the details of it and see how it can be, um, how it can be either addressed through this budget process or how it relates to some of the existing services the city provides. It may not be exactly the, the same um, idea that's being proposed, but I do want to um, put out there that the newly announced uh, Neighborhood Economic Development Team, which is which the mayor announced last week, is intended to drive uh, investment and business development and neighborhood improvements um, out in the neighborhoods across the city. That may be one um, component of this request. Maybe it might not be all of it, but definitely look forward to reviewing that request in detail. Thank you. Just wanted to get it on the record, Madam President. No problem. And just for the general public, now we will move into budget hearings starting next Wednesday. We will uh, hear around, I think, roughly 46 different hearings. Um, Mr. Corley, do we have the schedule out that is public for residents to follow and know what hearing is what date, et cetera? And where is that located so that people can be aware? Thank you, Madam President. Um, good morning, City Council. Um, our budget calendar should be posted on LPD's website. If you go into uh, LPD under City Council's website and then go into budget analyses 2023-2024, uh, uh, you should find that. And we will be posting um, the reports on the individual budget hearings on that same uh, link. Okay. So citizens, citizens can see the questions that we generate and then we'll try to also post the questions that council members generate and also the responses to the questions on that same um, um, link. All right, great, thank you. Um, council Member Young? Thank you, Madam President. It's not oh, there we go, thank you, Madam President. Uh, kind of piggyback, piggyback off of uh, President Pro Tem uh, Tate's uh, question, I just want to make kind of a clarification. What they're asking for is $600,000 for full, three full-time equated positions. So I just want to kind of give you that working group. Um, I also want to ask Mr. Rising, I know this is separate and apart from property tax reduction, but I am waiting with bated breath about what the plan is involving split rate taxation um, for five to one. So you tax land five times more than you tax the property or if it's improvements, you're talking about an 18.4% reduction according to Lincoln Institute. I just want to know, has there been any discussions about that at all? Are we, are we still in the process of... Do I need to do my job and talk to the legislators in Lansing or just 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 kind of give me some guidance here what needs to happen, what we need to do to get that up and running? Council President to Council Member Young, uh, I, I am impressed with your knowledge of the subject. Um, uh, yes, uh, this is a proposal which has received a lot of work. I'm close to kind of making my suggestions to the mayor uh, how to, how to um, structure it uh, and making sure that it's equitable as well as... Uh, Legal and how, how they may operate. Well, if there's anything I can do, please let me know. 
Thank you, Mayor President. Thank you. No. And full, fully support that as well, too. I think we all are eager to see um, the reduction in property taxes and what that can bring to the residents in Detroit. So thank you so much. All right, is there any additional comments or questions? And again, um, we thank everyone for the public comment. For those who have specific issues or ideas that you are uh, wanting to put forward again during the budget hearings is a great time to hone in on your specific requests. And that is when council would dive a little bit deeper into these issues during our departmental hearings. We will hold 46 of them. Uh, the first one starting next Wednesday. And again, that calendar will be posted online. If you are not uh, savvy with online technology, always feel free to call uh, our office. And we will also uh, coordinate you with your district council person to make sure that you are aware of all of the budget hearings that are coming before uh, the city council. So we appreciate you all. Thank you to budget. Thank you to the OCFO's office. And if there's nothing else to come before this committee, is there a motion to adjourn? All right, we will stand adjourned. Thank you.